Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Dixie De La Tour. You know you're not supposed to go back and forth between my two holes, so you better stay back there now. And he's like, what? (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to remind you about the fantastic deal we have if you go to adamandeve.com. For a limited time, you'll get 50% off, 50% off just about any item. And they have fabulous brands there like Lilo, Rocks Off, Fleshlight, Liberator, Lubes from Pure and Wet. If you like glass dildos, which I do, they have a great selection of those. Rabbits, rabbits for the ladies. Ladies, come get your rabbits here. And so much more. You will also receive three free adult DVDs plus a free exclusive gift that's the clit bumper my friend someone a fan sent me a photograph of said clit bumper and man does that thing seem to be built for bumping of clit (laughs) oh my goodness is that the ideal pleasure ring for couples with the pleasure nubs to thrill her sweet spots. AdamandEve.com. You use the promo code RISK at the checkout. That's R-I-S-K at AdamandEve.com. Now here's the show.
Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Philip Glass and Uakti behind me now. Oh my goodness, this is Risk live in San Francisco 2016. We go to San Francisco a couple times each year. Once a year for their fabulous Sketch Fest, and once a year just to visit on our own and... This latest show was a spectacular one. Someone came up to me afterwards and said it was the most diverse and warm and friendly audience she'd ever seen at a show in San Francisco. So that was a real honor. I have to say, speaking of diversity, my days recently have been so weighed down by this mounting horror over the thought of Donald Trump possibly becoming the president of the United States. I truly, dearly fear for the women, the people of color, the queer people. Uh, There is this movement that the hate radio and, you know, Fox News and and that right-wing media has really, like it's finally come to full fruition in Donald Trump's campaign this racist, xenophobic, nationalistic movement that could end up dragging this entire country and the entire world over a cliff. It's terrifying. So it's more important than ever before that we speak up, that we tell our stories, and that we get active. I mean, you know, historically, we have not been political on this show, but these are dangerous days, my friends. In the next few months, we have to not just be telling our stories, but we have to be getting out there, our feet on the ground, getting people to the polls, actively campaigning for Hillary Clinton. And in the meantime, I've got to figure out some sort of method for not having a fucking nervous breakdown over the daily news. But I think you'll be able to hear in this San Francisco show, you'll be able to hear in that audience the love and hope and community and acceptance, tolerance that is the thing that will get us through all this if we're active and loud enough between now and November. Okay, (laughs) we're going to start with a fantastic story from Jake Arkey. Jake runs a storytelling show of his own. I think it's in Oakland. You can find it at SoSayWeAllOnline.com. And here he is now with a story we call Brother in a Box. I, for 10 years, was an only child, and it was amazing. It was like the best time of my life. 
I was the apple of my parents' eye. I was the prodigal son. I was just the golden child. And my parents and I, we had a really great relationship. You know, I would do anything to make them happy. I was a member of the Clean Plate Society. I was always quick with a joke. Whatever they needed, I was there. And they, in return, lavished me with so much love. And I I could get almost anything I wanted, um, say for like, you know, a Super Nintendo. You ask three times, and you're denied three times. But it was okay. Like, dare I say, we were the perfect, happy family. And then one day, my parents sat me down when I was about seven years old, and they said, Jake, how would you like to have a little baby brother or sister? And I remember I was leaning back in my Ninja Turtle PJs, this nice, cushy, plush chair that my parents had gotten just for me, and I entertained that thought for a microsecond. And I looked at my mom and my dad and said, nah, I think I'm good. And they said, too bad, we've already started the process. And by process, what they meant was an international adoption. Uh, For whatever reason, they couldn't have a second biological child. And let's face it, they weren't going to get another one quite as good as this. And we had some neighbors growing up who had adopted two boys from India. So my parents kind of took their lead and uh, they filled out an application. And if you've ever been through this process, it takes a long, long time. For us, it took three years. It started to seem like it wasn't going to happen. I'd come home and I would ask my parents, oh, is my brother in a box? Has he been delivered yet? You know, has FedEx dropped off this little brother I'm supposed to be getting? And my parents would laugh and I would laugh and it seemed like the day would never come and then it did I was 10 years old we were waiting in an airport right by the gate uh, for an international flight from Bombay to um, just have everybody leave and uh, we're waiting we're waiting and there's several adoption agents who are bringing over a handful of children who are being adopted in the United States And the last agent to get off is carrying this small, little, emaciated brown boy with wild hair. And she puts this boy into my mother's arms, and my mother just breaks down. She is so happy. And my dad is grinning. He's beaming with joy and pride. And this little boy is giving us this skeptical look, like, who the fuck are you people? And he turns around and reaches for the adoption agent who's going to go get her bags. And the adoption agent looks at this boy and goes, no, 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 you stay with them. And looks at us and goes, this one didn't sleep the 22 hour plane ride from Bombay. And in the back of my head, I was like, yeah, mark of the devil. I I see it. Where I was the golden child, Sam was a hellion. He took every chance available to just destroy our house. He was a little nightmare. He'd run up and down the halls, tearing pictures off of the walls. He'd throw his food at dinner time. He was just insane and crazy. And the worst part of it was his yelling. He would shriek like a banshee out of hell into the wee hours of the night and drive us all nuts. And the only thing that would calm him down was Bobby. 
And what Bobby was, was a stuffed animal figure of Babar. And if you're not familiar with Babar, it's that children's story of the same name about the imperialistic French elephant who goes and colonizes the other elephants. It's a very strange story to tell children. But we had this nice little stuffed Babar, and Sam dubbed him as Bobby. And as long as we had Bobby, we had a bargaining chip. We had leverage. You're, you're throwing your food everywhere, you're not getting Bobby. You're not sitting in your seat while we're driving on the freeway, you're not getting Bobby. You're not going to sleep, you're not getting Bobby. Bobby went everywhere with Sam. We had two other members of our family that I haven't told you about yet. Jackson and Taz. And they were truly members of our family. They were our Labrador retrievers. They were sweet dogs, very kind, very big. And at the end of the day, they were dogs. And if Sam and the dogs got together, within 10 minutes, something would either be on fire or a pipe would be broken or just everything was going nuts times 10. And usually the victim of these shenanigans was Bobby. And it started out with a leg being ripped off, and then Bobby was Y-sectioned open, and all of these fluffy intestines were taken out, and he was dragged everywhere until Bobby was reduced to a head. And then one day, Taz ate the head whole. And I cannot tell you the Kafka-esque nightmare that our household became that night with Sam screaming and yelling into the wee hours of the morning and my parents just started to lose it. They were very rational people, very reasonable, but they were pulling their hair out. We were going nuts. Nobody got any sleep that night. So the next day, my mother, God bless her soul, running on fumes that only an amazing parent can generate from in the depths of their soul, went into the backyard and waited for Taz to pop a squat so that Bobby could re-emerge through Taz's asshole and land in a steaming, gooey pile of chocolate dog shit that my mother then plucked Bobby out of put it in the wash, put it in the dryer, and gave back to Sam. And this is where I said in a 10-year-old version, fuck that shit. No, no, we are not the family that does this. No, I'm putting a stop to it. I'm taking matters into my own hands. And at this point in time, I was roughly in sixth grade. I had started to watch some Law & Order reruns on TNT. I started to read the amazing works of John Grisham, and I thought, if there's anywhere that I can find a solution, surely it's in the American justice system. (laughs) And lucky for us, we had a court date to finalize Sam's adoption. So cut to a few months later. It's a cold Wednesday morning. We're sitting outside the courtroom, My dad is wiping sleep boogers out of his eyes because he's working nights and then waking up to take care of Sam in the morning. My mother is holding Sam as he's punching her in the face with the bobby head that I just see coming out of my dog's butt over and over and over again. And then there's me sitting on a bench in my little peewee suit that my grandmother bought me from Mervyn's with a clip-on tie that nobody told me to wear. 
And I just keep thinking, what would Sam Waterston do? And as if on cue, dung-dung, the doors open. The clerk motions us inside. And I think, here we go. All right, this is it. I walk in, and I'm shocked that at a quarter to nine on a Wednesday morning, there's not a huge audience in the courtroom for what I deem to be the trial of the century. We take a seat with our attorney. We wait. Finally, the judge comes in. And I'm looking at this judge, and I'm like, yeah, this guy, he's an eldest child. I can just tell something about him He's going to empathize with me. He's going to see things my way. I'm good. I got this in the bag. We all take a seat. Our attorney says something to the judge. The judge says something to the clerk. Our attorney says something else. And then the judge asks us all to rise. And the judge looks at my father, and he goes, Sir, do you take this child to be yours legally as if he were your own flesh and blood? And my father, who used to be so calm and so quiet and smile all the time, who I've watched descend in kind of an old man with bags under his eyes and losing his hair, and I know he's been through the ringer ever since we adopted Sam, he rises to the occasion, and he looks the judge square in the eye, very stately, and he goes, yes, your honor, I do. The judge nods, and he looks at my mother, and he goes, ma'am, Do you take this child legally to be your own as if he were your own flesh and blood? Now, I've watched my mom over the course of Sam's adoption lose her voice from becoming so hoarse, screaming at this little infant just to go the fuck to sleep. And through tears and getting bashed in the face with Bobby, she says, yes, your honor, I do, I do. And then the judge looks at me. (laughs) And it was probably just a lark, probably just for shits and giggles. But he goes, young man, do you take this child legally to be part of your family as if he were your own flesh and blood? I stand up straight, I look the judge dead in the eye, and I say, absolutely not. And the judge kind of peers over his glasses and he goes, oh, and why's that? And that's when I make my case. (laughs) I was not consulted about this adoption prior to the events of the application. No, I was merely informed after the fact. You don't understand, our house used to be amazing. We used to be the perfect family. It used to be beautiful where we lived and now it's just a nightmare. Clearly, we are the wrong family for this child. This was not meant to be. There was some mix-up. Please, your honor, send him back to India. I rest my case. (laughs) And for the first time in my life, I know I'm in trouble. (laughs) I haven't done the good son thing. I can feel my parents' eyeballs burrowing into me as I just stare at the floor, and it is silent in the courtroom. It's silent for about half a minute, and then there's a little chuckle. And that chuckle turns into a chortle, that turns into a belly laugh, and I look up to see the judge laughing at me. And he says, son, that's what being a family is. That's what having a little brother is. 
And then this judge, this clever judge, he saw right through me. He played on my golden child status, and he goes, son, I can tell. You're a very sharp young man, aren't you? I sort of nod, like, yeah, you know. He goes, you're gonna be a great leader someday. But do you think that right now, you could lead this poor child who grew up in Calcutta, India with no opportunities and no family, do you think that you could lead by being a good older brother? And not wanting to refute a judge nor tear up this amazing portrait he had painted of me, I sort of shrugged and mumbled that I, you know, could give it a shot, maybe. (laughs) Judge said, great. Bang the gavel, and like that, we were a family. Now, over the past 20 years, my brother and I have not really seen eye to eye on a lot of things. I'm no longer the golden child, and he's no longer quite the black sheep, but we are still very different people. I'm single, I don't have any kids, Uh, I haven't lived with my parents for the last 12 years. Uh, Sam has a two-year-old child by way of his high school girlfriend. He's 21 years of age and is onto his third fiance. And both of them are currently living on my parents' living room floor in Salt Lake City, Utah. (laughs) But when my brother turned 21 this past February, We asked him what he wanted, and he said he just wanted to come out to San Francisco so he could turn 21 with his brother. And I have to be honest, it's the closest we've ever been. He came out for three days, and we just, we went out for drinks, and he popped his karaoke cherry with me at the Mint, singing Linkin Park, of all things, twice, the same song, twice. And we talked about stories and the future and his son and my nephew. And for the first time in my entire life, I truly felt like I had a brother. Now, they say that it takes a village to raise a child. I tried to send Sam back to that village and it didn't work. (laughs) We ended up being family, so we might as well be friends. Thank you so much. Uh, Are you guys familiar with this uh, notion called Rule 34? If you can think of it, there's a kink of it. Uh, Now we've all got in our minds this idea. You know, I know uh, a good friend of mine is into puppy play, and now I'm like, gosh, I wonder if I fed him (laughs) the head of a Babar doll... (laughs) What might ensue? Um, (laughs) I want to bring our next storyteller to the stage. And she is just one of my favorite people on planet Earth. She's a real inspiration to me because she is the person who created one of the greatest storytelling shows in the world, and that is Body Storytelling. (laughs) 
If you have never seen a body storytelling show, oh my gosh, it is such a treat. It's a not-to-be-missed occasion. And it's right here in San Francisco. It's an institution at this point. Anyway, here she is now. I love her so much, and she is always just such a treat to share the stage with. Please welcome to the stage, Dixie De La Tour! Hey y'all, how you doing? How many people here like storytelling? This kind of storytelling we're doing right now, there's different kinds. This one is, we call personal narrative storytelling. People telling their own personal stories. And when I first discovered personal narrative storytelling, we could get up in front of our friends and we could talk about all the stuff we've done in our life. I was like, and a light bulb went out. I was like, this is why I did all that crazy shit on the internet. I had no idea. I felt compelled to do it, but I didn't know why. So when I first discovered it, I kind of, you know, I was a sex party producer. I was kind of a dirty girl, and it didn't fit most of the shows where I could go, and I could tell stories, so I created my own show. And I invited, it was a pervert coffee clutch in the beginning. It was, we get together, and every month I'd say, we're going to gather, and there'll be a theme, and then you can get up and tell a story of your own. And I would say... So this month, our theme is going to be, and I never saw that person again. (laughs) And they go, oh, and I'm like, I thought you had one. And then I'd say, uh, next month, our theme's going to be, go big or go home. And they go, hmm, and I'm like, yeah, I thought so. So one month, I come up with a theme, and I just send it out to folks saying, next month, The theme of our get-together is going to be the worst sex ever. And they get really excited. And then it occurs to me, because I'm kind of the person who starts things off, I'm going to have to kick it off with a story of my own. And I don't really think I have a story about the worst sex I ever had. Nothing comes to mind. I mean, there was that guy fucked over on Fillmore Street, and... He obviously learned how to bang from porn, and he jackhammered the shit out of me, and I couldn't sit down for a week. And that was bad sex. But it wasn't the worst sex ever. And there was that guy who had like five roommates out in the sunset, and went over, and we had loud, boisterous sex in his room. And when we came out, he high-fived all of his roommates on the way to the front door. And that seemed rude. and feel like it was the worst sex ever. So the day before our storytelling event, I tell my boss, Sister Mabel, I... (laughs) I don't even know why that's funny, but it is. (laughs) Sister Mabel, I gotta kick a show off tomorrow night on the worst sex ever, and I don't think I have a story. What am I going to do? And she says, oh, Dixie, do what you always do. Just get on the internet and put out an ad for it. 
like, oh, that always works. I'm going to do that. So I go to my favorite place, Craigslist. And I get on and I start typing. Craigslist is amazing because you can type anything. There's no forms. You can write anything. And I have many times. So I write an ad and it says, the worst sex ever. Want to help? It is imperative that I have terrible, terrible sex in the next 24 hours. And I need your assistance. Please respond. And I post it. And it feels like a million replies come in. My inbox is filling up and I'm just like, oh, wait, I have to figure out how to choose. The response to, like, I have always looked for something in particular, but I've never really looked for bad sex before. So I'm not really sure if the objective is the worst sex ever. How do you make a decision? So I close my eyes, and I twirl my finger, and I land on screen on an email, and I click it, and I open it. And the email says, hi there. I was intrigued by your ad. They're always intrigued by your ad. And my name is Marco. I'm 5'10", swarthy. I've attached my phone number and a photo. I hope to hear from you. And I see that there's an attachment. And I click on it. And as it opens, I see that the photo is entitled Hung JPEG. (laughs) We all think that was a picture of. (laughs) It's a picture of his dick. (laughs) And I look at it, and he's laying on his back, and he's got kind of a hairy stomach. That's really all I can see other than a penis. It's kind of having a pretty good day. I wouldn't have called it Hong JPEG. <laughs> and I sit there and look at it. That kind of, are we, the, you know. And then it occurs to me, wait a minute. This guy just sent me a picture of his dick entitled Hong JPEG. That's some fucking arrogance right there. This has all the makings of the worst sex I'm ever going to have. This here's my guy. So I write him back. And I'm like, hey there, Marco. Congratulations, you are the grand prize winner. Please send me your address. I'm going to head out to your house, but you're going to need to meet me on the street because you might be a serial killer for all I know. He says, okay. He sends me his address. I leave work. I get on the 38 Geary. And I head out. When I get to 15th Avenue, I get off, and there's this guy I'm seeing for the first time standing at the bus stop. And he looks at me, and I look at him, and he looks a little bit like if you crossed a chubby Al Pacino with Marmaduke. (laughs) And I look at him, and I go, you don't look like a serial killer. Let's go. 
so he tells me his place is about a block away. We start walking up the street. I asked him about himself. He tells me that he's a car salesman out at the Nissan dealership out in San Bruno and a little bit about himself. And pretty soon we arrive at the door of his very old, very distinguished apartment building. And he lets us into the lobby. And then he walks across it and starts heading up a flight of stairs. And I follow him and he starts heading up the second flight and I go behind him and I'm getting pretty winded by this. (laughs) And I'm like, how come your building don't have an elevator? He goes, oh, it's a really old building. It doesn't have an elevator. It's it's great. I'm like, what floor do you live on? He goes, I live on the fifth floor. I'm like, wow. You must be in really good shape. He goes, yeah. I was an athlete in high school. (laughs) And I go, well, I wasn't an athlete in high school. So why don't you head on up to the fifth floor and I'll join you as soon as I can get there. So takes me a while. I huff and a puff on every floor. I eventually make it to the fifth floor and it's really clear where I'm supposed to go because at the end of the hall there's a doorway that's open and I can hear loud almost party music coming out of it. And I step inside the apartment and I look around and it's pretty simple. It's a tiny studio apartment. It's got a bookcase with a bunch of books. It's got a wooden futon, the kind that opens out into a bed, which conveniently has been made to. And there is a TV set across the room that is very loudly playing Speed Racer the movie. (laughs) Have y'all ever listened to Speed Racer the movie? It's like, oh, 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 oh. And I'm like, that was a weird choice. And then I'm like, well, wait a minute. Maybe he's being polite. He was afraid he'd put me off by putting on porn right off the bat. So he just put on the second best thing, which is going to be Speed Racer, the movie. (laughs) But it's loud. And I say, Marco, could you turn that down a little bit? And he does. And I stand in the small apartment and I go over to the futon and I sit down. And he stands in the middle of the room and just looks at me. And Speed Racer's kind of playing. And... There's that awkward moment where something's about to happen. But I have never instigated the worst sex I've ever had. So I'm not really sure how to get things started. And after a pause, he just stands there and pretty soon he goes, so do you want to see it? (laughs) And there are two voices in my head. The Dixie voice goes, oh, you need to get over yourself. And the other one, which needs a story in less than 24 hours, says, yeah. (laughs) So he undoes his belt, he hikes his pants down, pulls everything out, he's got his pants down around his knees, which is a really good look. (laughs) Sticks there, kind of half chub, it's okay. He's given me a little Vanna White flourish. (laughs) I'm trying really hard not to laugh. 
And I go, impressive. He's like, yeah, you like it? I'm like, yeah, let's go. I shook off all my clothes. I hand him a condom and a packet of lube. I get on my knees doggy style, facing out the window on the wooden futon, and I wait for him to mount me. (laughs) I feel him come behind me. He's put the condom on. He's used a ton of lube. And he goes to slide inside me. It's really wet. From the lube. He gets it in about a half an inch, and then he stops. <laughs> Teetering futon. And he goes, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm great. Gives him about a little bit more. He goes, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. He keeps doing that. I don't know who told him this was the biggest dick in the world, but he bought that shit, hook, line, and sinker. (laughs) So his lubed up monster cock is... A tiny bit in and a tiny bit out, and on one of his backstrokes, he slips out of my pussy and slides into my ass. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. And he goes, Oh my god, are you okay? Yeah, but you know you're not supposed to go back and forth between my two holes, so you better stay back there now. And he's like, What? He can't believe anybody could take this thing in their butt. (laughs) So if it was bad before, now it's like an eighth of an inch. (laughs) Yeah, you're good. Is it all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be on this fucking futon when I'm supposed to be telling this story in 24 hours. keeps doing it a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, and I'm like, oh my fucking God, are you kidding me? So finally I decide it's time to take matters into my own hand. So on one of his strokes, I rear back and I slam myself, bam! All the way to the hilt in my ass. And from behind me, I hear a high-pitched scream. He slumps on top of me on that rickety futon and I'm not sure what's happened. I kind of wait to see if he's going to reveal anything. I think he's come. And there's just this like it's I'm clueless. I can't see what's happening. It's on my back. So after a little bit he pulls out He gets up off the futon. I'm pointed the other way and he goes behind me and he goes into the bathroom and he shuts the door. And after a minute, I hear the shower go on. And I sit on the wooden futon looking at Speed Racer on the TV. 
And I'm like, well, now what? I mean, how do you know when the worst sex you ever had is over? So I sit there naked, leaking lube, waiting to see what's gonna happen. And after a very long time, I hear the shower cut off. And he comes to the doorway and he stands there and I turn and I look at him and I go, are, are we done? And he goes, yeah. So here's the thing. When you reared back like that really hard on me, I tore a hamstring. I'm in excruciating pain right now. I guess you ain't walking me down them five flats of stairs now, are you? <laughs> so we shake hands, porno style. And as I head out of Marco's building, it occurs to me, you know, I never really stipulated who the word sex was actually going to be for, did I? <laughs> Thanks, y'all. This is Risk. This is John Newman behind me now. And we just heard from Dixie De La Tour. Hey, folks, if you want to check out a new podcast, I've got one for you. It's called Found. It's hosted and created by Davey Rothbart, who you might remember from This American Life. For the past 15 years, Davey's been collecting lost and found stuff, like notes, letters, photos, all over the world. He took those notes and created Found Magazine. That became a musical. Now it's a podcast. And in the podcast, Davey solves the mysteries that he finds and discovers super personal stories about love, loss, hope, and more. Plus, the cool thing is you can participate. There's a found app on iOS where you can check out the finds from the podcast and even upload your own found notes. The first episode is Asian Oprah, The Grand Dream. It's all about the lives we dream versus the lives we're living. Davey tries to track down a guy named Jet, who in 1999 moved to L.A. from Chicago with dreams of becoming the Asian Oprah funny, heartbreaking, ultimately inspiring. The second episode is all about looking for love and the crazy things that people do to find it. You don't want to miss it. New episodes drop every other Wednesday, so make sure you subscribe today to Found on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at wondery.com found. Also, I'm pretty much guessing you've heard of Blue Apron by this point. I have so many friends who are crazy about it. 
Not all ingredients are created equal. You know, fresh, high-quality ingredients taste better and are better for you. So it's important to know where your food comes from. Now, for less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. It's going to transform the way you feed yourself, I'm telling you. Blue Apron knows when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make great meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, ranchers, whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron brings you the best. How many times have you intended to create a recipe at home, and then you look at the list of ingredients and you're like, Oh shit, I've got to buy this, 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 and this at the grocery store. No more. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash risk. You will love how good it feels and tastes and how fun it is to create gourmet cooked meals at home on your own with Blue Apron. That's blueapron.com slash risk, R-I-S-K. Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. We're going to get back to our San Francisco show now with an absolute beginner. Mark Davey had never told a story in front of an audience before, so it was a real thrill to see him take this on. Mark works for Hyde Street Community Services. It's a nonprofit agency in San Francisco operating in the Tenderloin Outpatient Mental Health Clinic. The website is at hydestreetcs.org. Check it out and support them if you can. Here's Mark Davey now with a story we call The Running Man. Thank you. Thank you. God, I can't believe I'm going on after those stories. <laughs> so, in 1986, I was 16 years old, and I was living in the small town in Mississippi where I'd spent my entire life, and I wanted out. I was in the full flower of teenage rebellion, hair metal, long, greasy hair, a leather jacket I wore in the Mississippi summertime for some reason. <laughs> Parachute pants, bright white Converse sneakers, and a leather wristband with spikes on it, so you knew I was a badass. <laughs> We're not gonna take it. And that was my mantra for a while of self-expression and teenage rebellion until someone played for me a recording of a band called The Suicidal Tendencies. Oh, and their music spoke to me like no music had ever spoken to me before. And they did this song called Institutionalized. And I identified with it so much because they sang, sometimes I try to do things and it just doesn't work out the way I want it to. And I knew what that was like. <laughs> and in another part they sang, all I wanted was a Pepsi and she wouldn't give it to me. Just a Pepsi and... I didn't understand all their lyrics, but there was an energy behind their music. There was this anger and this disillusionment and this alienation, and I wanted so much to be a part of that because I fundamentally did not want to be me anymore. Being me was being a kid, and I was 
timid and I was shy and I was painfully awkward and I was sad sometimes because people were mean to me and I didn't want to be sad. I wanted to be angry and I wanted to be in your face and I didn't want to care what you thought about me and I wanted you to know how little I cared about what you thought about me. <laughs> so I cut my hair into a mohawk and I spiked it up. I ripped up my leather jacket and I put safety pins all over it. I wrote band names on the back like Dead Kennedys and the Subhumans and I got army fatigues and ripped them up in combat boots and I spray painted them bright colors and I made a big spectacle out of myself which I learned was not the greatest idea in a small town in Mississippi. <laughs> One night in a parking lot, our drunk construction worker from Alabama flicked his lit cigarette at the side of my head and I turned around and I gave him the double burn and fuck you, man! <laughs> he beat the shit out of me. <laughs> I got hassled on the street, I got stopped by cops who had no sense of self-expression or humor, I learned. I had a sister who lived in the San Francisco Bay Area and she was a graduate student here and she said that I could come and stay with her on like a temporary basis, like just get a change of scenery, you know? And I saw an escape. And so I ran. I ran as fast as I could to this new persona, to this new life, to get away from everything I knew. I ran so fast, I didn't even say goodbye to people who had been my friends my entire life. And I came to San Francisco Bay Area and it was an incredible time to be here in 1986. There were so many bands and there were so many clubs. <laughs> That's right, we freaked havoc, that's how we did it. I was going to two to three shows a weekend. I was surrounded by kids that looked just like me and thought just like me and talked just like me and we were all radical nonconformists together. And there was a whole new world of experience and I wanted to take it all in and I just wanted to dive into it. So many things and I wanted to just go to the edge and I did and I ran to the edge and I dove over. Things soured with my sister. She went uh, away for a week's trip and she came back and I had called in every crusty punk I could muster and we had a week long rager and we trashed the fucking place. There were cigarette burns everywhere and booze stains and holes punched in the walls and there had been a fist fight with neighbors over their unreasonable noise complaints. <laughs> and after a few more scenes like this, she said, you gotta go. And I said, fine, because that's what I wanted. Now I can live outside of your rules and your institutions and your society. <laughs> Now I'm calling the shots! And I screwed it up. <laughs> Flop houses and uh, residential hotels and couch surf for a while. I lived in a Fritz van for a while and I screwed up every opportunity I had and I found myself living on the streets at age 17. And to some degree, this is what I had been running toward the whole time, right? This real vital punk existence, this street punk life. And I learned that it is easy to achieve all of your dreams as long as all of your dreams are kind of shitty. <laughs> but the reality was very different. And I learned this really quickly. The first night I slept out on the streets, I was sleeping on the concrete outside of a church. And I discovered that there is a kind of cold you encounter when you're homeless that is unlike any other kind of cold. You may be aware of the physical sensation of it. Say you leave a club or a party, it's three in the morning, and the fog is rolled in, and there's a chill wind, and it slices through whatever you're wearing, and it just chills you right to the bone, but that's not what I'm talking about, because in that moment, you know you can get out of it. You know you're gonna get in a car or a house or a bed, 
But that first night, that same chill wind swept through my thin blanket, and the ground just leached all the warmth out of me. And the cold descended on me, and it started to speak to me. And it said, you messed up. And now I've got you. And you are never going to feel warm again. And once it started talking to me, there wasn't anything I could do. I couldn't go back to sleep. I couldn't just lay there and wait it out. Sunrise was hours away, an impossible amount of time. So I had to get up and start moving. But my experiences with other people at three in the morning was very different from Kevin's. I encountered roving packs of drunks one night who were just looking to beat someone's ass. Another night there was a guy, some walking through a residential neighborhood who pulled up next to me in his pickup truck and slammed on the brakes and sat there with the truck idling, just looking at me. And as I kept walking, he sped and squealed his tires and went around the corner and went around the block and pulled up alongside me again and did the same thing again. And on his third circuit around the block, I panicked and I ran and I jumped over someone's fence and I hid in their yard and I listened to the sound of his truck angrily driving up and down the street for the next 20 minutes. And there were cops. Cops always had questions. They wanted to know why I was out and what I was doing. But one night, I noticed this couple. It was about four in the morning, and they were out, and no one else was paying any attention to them. And they didn't need any justification for being out, because what they were doing was their justification. They were jogging. And I thought, huh, that seems like some pretty effective camouflage. <laughs> Maybe I could try that. Maybe I could sort of deconspicuous some of this conspicuousness, put some camouflage over my persona, so the next night I tried it. It was about 3.30 in the morning and I see someone on the sidewalk coming toward me and so I just start breaking into a jog. <laughs> now, I'm 17 years old. I weigh conservatively about 95 pounds. I'm wearing a ripped up leather jacket. It probably says something like the scum fucks on the back of it. <laughs> I've got torn army fatigues on, combat boots. My hair is spiked up into a proud fan of a mohawk. You know, your average jogger. <laughs> and when the humidity from the fog, coupled with the sweat from my exertion, hit what I had used to spike my hair up, usually either egg whites or unflavored gelatin, it would melt it. And it would cause my fan to just start flopping back and forth on either side of my head like this hair metronome and it would drip down in my face, and I smoked a lot. So if I tried to run more than just a few steps, I'd be one second, one second, doubled over in a hacking cough. But it seemed to me like this was effective camouflage because when I did it that night, that guy got the fuck away from me. <laughs> Another morning, I was standing at a corner. I don't know what I was doing there. I was just... I see a police car coming up the street, so I try it just trotting in place. I'm not going to run from the cops. Fuck no. I'm just trotting in place, looking at the light, waiting for it to change, and the light changes, and I start across the street, and then I've got to stop for a second. I've got to get back. <laughs> and the cops are doing that sort of slow roll thing that they do, where they give you the hard stare and the intimidation so you know they're watching, so don't fuck around. And I look over at them, and I give them a devil-may-care kind of top of the morning to your officer, sort of nod of the head, and then I'm up, and then I'm off jogging again. And the cops look at me, 
and they look at each other and they shake their heads and they drive on. <laughs> so my camouflage worked. <laughs> One night I woke up and it was about 3.30 in the morning and it was bitterly cold. And the cold was talking to me to the point where I was having like the teeth chattering effect, you know, like a cartoon character who sees a ghost. And I'm trying to sleep in between two dumpsters outside of this middle school and they're doing nothing to block the wind, but they do smell terrible. So I get up and I start moving around and I'm walking, I'm doing my jogging thing and nothing's working, I can't get warm. So I think, all right, look, I gotta go get out of this wind for even a few minutes, get some supplies that'll keep me up and moving until the sun comes up. There's a 7-Eleven I know that's open, college town, commercial street, everything else is closed down, it's deserted, just this one circle of light and relative warmth where I can go and get what I need. One can of Joel Cola, one pack of cigarettes, one box of no-dos. So I walk into the 7-Eleven and I immediately notice that something's wrong. I see out of the corner of my eye the clerk, this young Asian dude in his 20s, slender, and he's dealing with an older white guy, uh, heavier build, long dirty brown hair, dirty unkempt beard, dirty clothes. And this guy is yelling at the clerk about something. And my reaction is to take this immediate reflexive mental back step where I think, this is just some crazy homeless dude. I don't have time to deal with whatever the fuck is going on here, so I'm not gonna. So I walk through the store and I get my Jolt Cola and I take it up to the counter and I'm waiting. And I kind of come into the room for the first time and start paying attention to what's happened because he's still there yelling at the clerk. And that's when I see the knife in his hand. And that's when I realized this isn't an altercation and this isn't a rant, it's a robbery. And the clerk gives him money out of the register and he spins around and he seems to see me for the first time and he's got his knife and his money in his hand and I've got my jolt cola and my money in my hand and I'm just standing there and I'm frozen. And he turned on his heel and he ran out of the store and he yells, fuck you! And then he's gone into the darkness and it's quiet again. And the clerk looks at me and I look at him and we're both stunned. Neither one of us knows what to do, so I walk up to the counter and I put my Jolt Cola down and I say, I'd like a pack of camels and a box of no-dos, please. <laughs> and he says, no. And I say, no? And he looks at me puzzled and he says, no. And he calls 911 and as he's on hold, he explains to me, he says, you're with him, so you have to wait for the police. Now, never mind his logic here, that this guy and I decided to rob a 7-Eleven, and the object of it was to get money from the register, one Jolt Cola, one pack of cigarettes, and one <laughs> box of no-dos, and because he hadn't gotten everything, and he'd only gotten the money, I'm gonna hang around and pay for these items. <laughs> he was distraught, he wasn't thinking clearly, it's understandable. But what struck me was his immediate mental association of me and everything I thought I was, this punk living on the edge, a real vital existence, with that guy and everything I thought he was, just some crazy homeless guy who wasn't worth my time, so much so that in this clerk's mind, we had to be together. And I stood there and I stared at my now unattainable Joe Cola, and all I wanted was a Joe Cola and he wouldn't give it to me, and I finally understood those lyrics.
and I'm letting this sink in, and I have a sense that I could run for it, but fortunately I also have the sense that that would make it way worse and just lend credence to his theory. So I wait, and the cops come, and they hear my story, and the police are reasonable, thankfully, and the cop says, yeah, I get it, you wouldn't still be here, fine, you can go. And then he turns to his partner, and he shakes his head, and they look away. And I recognize that gesture because it's what the cops had done with my whole jogging camouflage. <laughs> Only now I understand what it means. They weren't doing that because my camouflage was working. They were doing that because it was so disastrously ineffective that when they looked at me, they did a reflexive mental backstep and thought, this is just some crazy homeless kid. We don't have time to deal with whatever the fuck is going on here. <laughs> So let's not. And I turned to leave the store and I saw my reflection in the glass of the doorway, only this time I saw it without all my usual bullshit poured over it, without all my dreams and my persona and my camouflage, just me. And I saw my skull-like face and bad skin and my wasted, emaciated frame and my clothes ripped and useless against the cold, hanging off me in these deep folds my dumb fucking floppy hair. <laughs> and I saw a kid who looked timid, painfully awkward, and deeply sad. I wish I could say that I stepped out of that store into a bright new morning and everything was all different and sunshine and roses after that, but that's not life. And that's not how change works, not for me. Change tends to come driven by pain, it takes a long time, and there are many setbacks. But something shifted in my head that night because once I started seeing myself the way that that clerk saw me and the way that those cops saw me and the way that the world saw me, I couldn't stop. And I knew that morning I had to stop running. Thank you. Mark Davey! Not bad for a first-timer, huh? Awesome. Now I'd like to bring our final storyteller to the stage. We've wanted to have her on for the longest time, so it was a real treat that this was able to work out this time as far as uh, schedules go. She is currently working on her 12th solo show, which makes me, you know, uh, just feel exhausted even saying that. Uh, she is somewhat of a legendary figure in the LBGTQ community and just someone I've always looked up to. Amazing with her characters and her comedy. The show she's working on, her 12th solo show, is called Latin Standards, and it's coming soon. You can find out more about it at margagomez.com. Please welcome to the stage, Marga Gomez! Thank you so much. How are you? Good? Really good? I am a lesbian. Yeah. 
And as a lesbian, I've blown off a lot of guys. Four years ago, I actually blew a guy. And what I want you to know, first of all, is that is not normal. That is not typical lesbian behavior. I don't care what you've seen in movies. And more than that is, uh, I'm not just any lesbian. I'm a lesbian leader. I'm an accomplished lesbian lover with decades of experience pleasing a vast array of intelligent and beautiful women. (laughs) Not to be cocky, but I just want you to know (laughs) that because of my status and my life's experience, that blowing a guy was the farthest thing from my mind, my conscious mind. But I had blowjob dreams, right? We all do. (laughs) Many times, and I could be in bed with the most beautiful woman, and I would be dreaming about blowing um, the guy in that Great America ad. I dream of that. (laughs) And that man who does that little dance. You want to blow him too, right? We all want to blow that man. (laughs) And in every blowjob dream I have, because I'm a gold star, by the way, that means I've never, well, I I was. Anyway, let me get back. (laughs) In every dream where I would have this blowjob occur, I'd be thinking, oh, wow, so this is a blowjob. You know, like a bucket list kind of thing. But then, in every dream, just before the orgasm, the blowjob would, um, like, liquefy. It would vaporize. It would pulverize into powder. And uh, I think that uh, it's very common. uh, And that we all have those kind of liquefied penis dreams. It's in the zeitgeist. And uh, in fact, remember that uh, song, uh, The Cake Was Put Out in the Rain. That's about a penis pulverized. Um, So I don't let these dreams uh, worry me. I take comfort in the fact that I'm such a lesbian. Uh, Kevin asked me to say my age, but you know, I think I'm already revealing enough tonight. (laughs) So I'm a a certain age, and I am a, you know, OG lesbian. I mean, I'm an authentic lesbian. Uh, I am well known for being a lesbian. I'm lesbian famous. I'm a celesbian, is what I am. Uh, Okay. All my rent has been paid because I'm a lesbian. And I have gone on stages such as this. 
and I have shared some lesbian content. Not a lot, but just enough, so everybody knows. I've gone on TV a little bit and been a lesbian. I've done all <laughs> these things, and I have traveled all around the country and the world with my lesbian message. And there was a time, my friends, when I was so hot that I was getting lesbian groupies. I was, I don't know if they were lesbians, but they, it, with me, they would be. Okay, they were women, and they were, they were offering themselves to me sexually, and I never did it with any of them because I always had a girlfriend at the time because I'm an OG lesbian. We always have a girlfriend, we're serial monogamous. And I was a monogamous, so I was faithful to every girlfriend and I'd have to tell the groupies, no, no, please come back when I'm single. But they were never around when I was single because groupies just, they have a sense for when you're taken. You know what I'm talking about, people in relationships. <laughs> and I was faithful, I was faithful to the end, to my last girlfriend, because there, there was apparently a last girlfriend. I'm gonna get to the blowjob, just let me talk about her. I'm gonna get to it, okay? I understand why you're here, but let me talk about my last girlfriend who I love so much. I love my last girlfriend so much. I probably should tell you her name, but I want to respect her privacy. So I'm going to just give her an alias. Let's call her Hortense. Hortense. Hortensia. Let's make her ethnic. Hortensia. Loved her so much. Loved her so much. And I didn't want to love her so much because because Inside, I knew it wasn't going to work out because there was a large age difference. There was a 20-year age difference. That's not even all the years of the age difference, but there were 20 for sure. <laughs> and, uh, and I heard all the little, you know, digs that people tell couples, you know, May-December relationships. I've heard them all, especially the one that my friends were very fond of, telling me, Marga, you're robbing the cradle. It's, fuck that. <laughs> Why do people always have to bother the older person in the couple? <laughs> Don't you see? We, <laughs> we're already dealing with a lot of pain. Don't you see? <laughs> the older person is not the person to fuck with. Don't you see? We've got enough problems, the older people. We're gonna die soon. <laughs> Leave the older person alone in this couple. Pick on the young one. Tell her, hey, you're robbing the grave, bitch. <laughs> I tell her that. And so I held back, you know, I just kept my wall up. I mean, I, I loved Hortensia more than I loved anyone in my life, and uh, we were together for almost seven years. And I resisted even going on a date with her because, you know, I thought this could only go one way, but she really convinced me that it would work out. She convinced me that her love was forever because, you know, young people, they really believe in things. And so she made me believe, and I believed, and I believed it. Even that, that last uh, year, we weren't having sex. We weren't having sex, but I believe she loved me. And then, of course, she said she had to go to grad school. Young people always have to go to grad school. 
away, away, away in Philadelphia. But she would always love me, and she made me believe that, that she'd always be there for me, always. I'm gonna get to the blowjob, hang on. <laughs> and then she was gone to grad school, selling in her new place in Philadelphia. You know, we would write to each other, and I could tell that I cared more about her than she cared about me, and she was drifting away, but I just kept writing, just kept texting, just kept believing her, and then I got a gig in Boston. I got a gig in Boston in January of that year, and we'd only been separated for a couple of months, and I thought, this is great, and I emailed Hortensia, and I said, oh my gosh, I got a gig in Boston. I'll go to Philly before I go to Boston. We'll get together. You, you want that? Should I? Should I? Should I? She said, yes, and so before this gig in Boston, I stopped in Philadelphia. I saw her new place, met her friends. I didn't care about them, and then... <laughs> We fucked and we fucked and we had the best sex we'd had in years. And considering one year we didn't have sex at all, in two years the best sex. It was we had such good sex. I I came, I came, I came, and I came and I kept coming. I kept coming. I left her in Philadelphia and I was still coming. I was coming. I went to my gig in Boston. I was on stage doing my show. I was still coming. I was so good. And the audience could feel like I was coming and they were coming with me. And it was the best show. I had ever done. It was sold out for some reason. I got a standing ovation, and after the show, I was like, well, it was great. And the manager of the club <gasps> runs over to me, and he was, a, he was a straight guy, and straight guys usually aren't into what I do, but he came over, and he was like, he kind of it talks like animal, and he was saying, uh, <laughs> that uh, everybody loved me and he wanted me back at the club and he uh, had a little hand, had me a little glass of Maker's Mark which he already knew was my drink and he pulled out the calendar and it was already January and um, the next date he had was in June. It was June 16th, it was my birthday, it was also Father's Day and, uh, and I thought, oh, I'll take that one. Yeah, I'll take, I'll do that one. It was a Sunday, it was Father's Day, not a good idea and, uh, but I thought, hey, it's my my birthday and then before that gig I'll stop in Philly because it'll be my birthday so surely Hortensia will fuck me uh, you know birthday fuck I mean it's still you know you still keep working it uh, when a relationship's over and uh, and then uh, and then I wrote to her and I said hey I, I uh, it went great in Boston and uh, they gave me another gig in June so I get to see you then you're gonna be around in June and she didn't write back and I called her and she didn't call back she didn't text back and she stopped loving me, and it was quiet, and I started to die, and I started to be in acceptance of the fact that uh, there was gonna be no more uh, fucking. <laughs> and that maybe was the last love of my life, the last great love, and uh, I, I started to get very depressed, and you know, and then my friends didn't want to hear it anymore, and I wasn't gonna spend money on therapy, so I just <laughs> drank and ate and smoked, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I just started getting like more like fuzzy and blurry and months and months went by and then it was June, it was time to do my gig in Boston. I was so fucking depressed, didn't feel funny at all. Got to Boston and, uh, and I uh, just had a, 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 a bad show. It was a, it was a bad show, it was my birthday and everything about that day was bad. It was my birthday and I thought, well surely Hortensia is gonna call me. She's gonna call me, she's gonna remember it's my birthday. I gave her, like, I, I bought her a coat on her birthday. I bought her a coat. And, uh, 
And she was in Philadelphia, it was cold. It was like she really liked it, the coat. Uniqlo, Uniqlo. Uh, and uh, I'm gonna get to the blowjob, just relax everybody. Uh, so I got this text, finally, finally. You know, it's like a few hours before the show and it's a text, the birthday text, okay. An email would have been good, a call would have been better. But a text, I'll take anything. And I, I hadn't heard from her, right? Since Jan- January, she said, happy birthday. Hope you're doing something fun, period. Period, period. No exclamation point, no heart, no nothing. That was it. Hope you're doing something fun. And then, and then I had the show. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't fun, and I, I, I just, I, I couldn't even hear the laughs. All I could hear was, hope you're having fun, 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 fun. <laughs> Turnout was terrible. Don't ever do a show on Father's Day in Boston, seat of patriarchy, don't. Show was over, it was a struggle for me and the audience, but finally it was over, they left, and uh, I, I just, uh, I went, like I went like backstage to like hide, and uh, to just uh, shake it off, and to understand what did I just do with the last almost seven years of my life, And then the manager of the club shows up. Let me talk about the blowjob now. (laughs) He shows up and he's got a glass of Maker's Mark in his hand. He remembers. Uh, And the manager, and you know what, let me, he's such a good man, good man. Um, And so he, he needs a name in this story and he needs privacy. So let me call him Apollo because he has gone where no man has ever gone before. (laughs) And Apollo said to me, (laughs) it's like, you're so right. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I don't know if I want to come back, Apollo. (laughs) Okay, I'll have another drink. And then... And then I just realized, I'm gonna hang out with him tonight. Because it's not like there were any groupies waiting for me, because I was single. So I went with him to this place he knew, just around the corner, where all the industry locals go, all the bartenders and waiters, they all go to this club to hang out. It was a rooftop, it was super nice, there was a DJ, and everybody knew him. They were like, hi, Apollo. And, uh, and we're sitting and we're drinking and he's just, you know, he's got me. He's got me in his, uh, you know, uh, crosshairs. Uh, and uh, I looked at him and, and I, I hadn't really even noticed him this whole time. The, the first show and all through this, um, this second return. And his eyes were very dark and deep set. And uh, he was my height, and he was uh, a little out of shape. He looked just like me. <laughs> and he was wearing a polo shirt and just complimenting me. <laughs> and he said that he wanted to take me all around town. Would I please come back? I didn't have to do the show. He would just take care of me. He'd put me up in a hotel room and he would take me to all the other great clubs in Boston where he knew everybody. And I realized 
that he was courting me. He was courting me. He was flattering me and being genuinely nice. And I excused myself and I went to the bathroom because I was really tired of talking to him. But still, <laughs> but still, I was favorable. I was favorable to him. I took out my phone to see if Hortensia, no, nothing. I have fun, do something fun. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna do something fun. I'm gonna do something fun. And I just straightened my bangs. And I went back out to the bar and I said, uh, Apollo, let's do something fun. And so he left the bar, got in his car. He has a great car. Because he said that all the women in Boston are shallow and superficial. He wants a girlfriend. And so he has no buddy to spend his money on except for his beautiful, beautiful car. And we drove out. And uh, I just was, you know, I wanted to blow him. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, we, and I wanted to go uh, blow him by a park. Because that's, that's how I, you know, kind of almost did it when I was in high school, by a park. Uh, but he drove to a, a deserted construction site. Just, wow, well, it's not really what I had in mind. Uh, but okay, okay. You know, and then he was like looking around uh, because apparently it's illegal for straight people to have sex in a car as well. Uh, so we started making out and I didn't like that. It didn't, it didn't, you know, he was, he was very, um, he was a very hairy guy. And then he, you know, it's like they can't shave enough. Like, you know, can you shave right now? Uh, you know, and I, and I have very sensitive skin and, uh, you know, I think that's maybe why I'm a lesbian, a very sensitive skin. I mean, I've had stubble before, like, a, like when I've, you know, been with women who are between waxing and that kind of hurts as well. But, you know, you go for it. Um, and, uh, and then I thought, hey, you know, just let, let me, uh, you know, let me just, I'm gonna... <laughs> and so then, uh, he, you know, they, everybody knows what that means. And he, um, he pulled out his dick and I, you know, started to, uh, attempt a blowjob and not good at it. It turns out I'm terrible at it. And you know, I'm so good at cunnilingus, but none of those skills transfer <laughs> to a blowjob. So I knew no teeth, but that's about all. There were other things I'm supposed to rub that, tap that, press that. I don't know what the hell, what the hell? Man, it really a lot of work. And so, you know. I'm blowing them, and then I thought, like in the dream, right about now, you know, the dick would uh, evaporate, but uh, it's still there, and it's like, is it getting bigger? Is this hard? Is this what it's supposed to be? <laughs> and, and, uh, and then I hear him moan. That's nice. That's nice when somebody moans for you. Am I right? Am I right? Yeah, when you hear that, it's like, that's all you really want. You're like, and I thought, Somebody likes me. <laughs> 20 minutes later. <laughs> nothing. Uh, so then he, he starts uh, jerking off, you know, because, you know, he's got to go to work in the morning. Uh, so he, he starts jerking off. I'm going, oh, good. I'm, you know, this is not done. He'll come. You know, I didn't understand why it took him so long to come because it's like, I'm Marga Gomez. I mean, I just thought, just the thought of it, I mean, whatever happened to premature ejaculation? I don't know why people are against that. I say, come. The minute you think of it and you, if you can, come now. Come now. Come. Everybody. 
Okay. Uh, gotta wrap this up. I, you know, I can't uh, really tell you the whole story because he took too long. Uh, but, but he's finally getting there. He's, he's finally coming. And then he says to me, and I... Like, the tone was not right. I didn't like the tone. You know, it's like, I'm still a feminist, so where's the please, miss? It's like, whatever, whatever. I just want this guy to come. So it's like, it's not even like I really do this, but it's like, okay, eh, woo. Uh, <laughs> and so I guess this worked for him. Because he goes, uh, he says to me, uh, how do you want it? Huh? And so he was saying, where do I want it? It's like, what? What do I want what? And I realized, oh, no, because I, 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 I've seen cable. I understand. There's a... So he wants to shoot it. And it's like, I mean, I thought it was going to go in my mouth. But obviously, that would be rude, and I'm a lady. So, so it's like, oh, yeah, where do I want it? Where do I want it? It's about to come. And so, I mean, my honest answer would have been outside. Did you? I'll be here. Go. But I've seen enough uh, softcore porn to say, on my tits. <laughs> be nice he bought me all those drinks so he shot it shot on my tits and it really wasn't what I expected I thought it was gonna be like a gusher you know but it was like trickle 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 and it's like was that even cum what was that you know but it was like oh wow that was great okay you know but then he says I want to go inside you and it's like oh my god no this is this is enough why wouldn't a guy just want a blowjob I would think that'd be relaxing like a recumbent bike uh <laughs> Why would you want to be going humping and stuff? And, he, and I said, oh, yeah, that would be great, but, you know, I can't. Uh, they don't allow that in my Airbnb. <laughs> you know? I just didn't want them to come back to my Airbnb and eat my snacks. Uh, and then, you know, he, he drove me back to my place, and he was just so nice. Really, Apollo, if you're listening to this, uh, thank you, and I'm sorry. Uh, but... He, you know, he just, he wanted me to come back and he kind of wanted me to be his girlfriend. And he kind of really, I think he really loved me. I mean, it was just so weird. I mean, he'd seen two entire shows of all my mess on stage and he really, he just felt like we were kindred spirits, probably because we were wearing the same polo shirt. Uh, <laughs> and I said, yes, of course. Oh, I can't wait to see you. And then he would send me little texts. I'm thinking of you. And, and it went on for months and I just stopped writing back to him. I stopped writing back to him. I'd, I'd done my blowjob. I was ready to move on. I felt strange when I bought produce. Uh, you know. And then I, uh, I did another blowjob just because I wasn't sure. Maybe I just, you know, maybe he just had a weird dick, you know? So I tried to know, he was my friend, he was my good buddy, and, uh, and was actually trying to get it on with uh, this girl, it was the threesome, and his uh, penis was uh, really great. I mean, I looked at it this time, and uh, it was beautiful and even uh, like a dildo, but still, it was really nothing for me, and I was completely researching the whole time. I was out of my body, and I learned, uh, you know, I just learned how the other side lives, and I realized that 
You know, all this stuff I heard about how blowjobs are so great, I never heard that from a woman. I only heard that from gay men. Um, the reason I'm telling this story, and I've never really told this story before, is because, why not? <laughs> I'm still a lesbian. And, and it's really okay to be a full-on 100% homosexual and never see or touch or deal with the junk of the opposite sex. But if you happen to be in a stage of your life where nothing else is happening and someone comes along, someone nice who flatters you, talks to you real nice like that, <laughs> and carries your bag and they can hold you for a night and make you feel like everything's gonna work out, then go for it, go for it. And if any of you straight women in the audience would like to try, Pussy, <laughs> just go to my website. You know, we, uh, we're all saying love each other now because of, uh, you know, the, the horror that we're all in and the insecurity that we all have and we're all facing. And we should love each other. But let's not stop there. Let's also fuck each other. Thank you very much. Good night. It's the music that we choose. 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 The world is spinning super. I'm fine that I can choose to keep myself tethered. The days I try to lose My mama said to slow down You must make your own shoes Stop dancing to the music I've got red is in a happy mood Keep my mood on That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Gorillas Behind Me Now, and we just heard from Marga Gomez. If you're looking for a new podcast to listen to, don't forget to check out Found. It's hosted and created by Davey Rothbart. You might remember him from This American Life. In the podcast, Davey solves the mysteries behind lost and found notes from across the globe. He tracks down the people who wrote them and discovers super personal stories about love, loss, hope, and more. New episodes drop every other Wednesday, so make sure you subscribe today to Found on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or visit Wondery.com slash Found. Risk is appearing next live at the Bell House in Brooklyn on July 27th. On July 30th, we're back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. On August 5th, we're in Toronto. Come on out, Toronto. On August 6th, it's Montreal. Don't miss us, Montreal. That'll be our first time ever 
in your town on August 6th. August 20th, we're back at the bootleg. August 24th, we're back at the Bell House. September 17th, we are in Salt Lake City, Utah. We're back in Salt Lake City. The theme is outrageous, and you can pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. On November 12th, we're in Baltimore. The theme that night is wounded. Again, pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Here's Mark Davey now with a story we call, oh, fuck my ass.